and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. So Sarah, last year we had uh, Marty Weintraub from Deloitte on to talk about retail. And I think it was uh, a really interesting conversation because you know it really is the ground level view of what's going on in the economy. And things in the economy are changing so quickly and so frequently and have changed a lot since last year. So I don't know, we were talking about it and thought it would be good to get Marty back on the show to you know, give us another view of what's happening and uh, some insight into the bigger economic picture from a retail floor level. Yeah, Marty is like the retail whisperer. The last time we talked, I feel like always when we talk to him, uh, it can branch out into a thousand different conversations. We were talking a little bit about uh, innovation in the retail sector. We were talking about you know RFID checkouts. We were talking about digital price tags, other ways that retailers are looking to reduce labor costs by uh, innovating a little bit more. And this, some of the themes that we were talking about have only become. Uh, increasingly relevant, right? It's like inflation is, you know, still high, particularly for grocery goods, but really all uh, sectors of the retail industry are are impacted by, you know, the rising cost of things. And I think Marty gives a really good uh, answer as to, you know, why some of those things uh, are the way they are. uh, And also more broadly, how retail is changing uh, to, you know, better use uh, automation, better use customer data. And so there's, there's tons of interesting things that Marty will be able to provide insights on. So, you know, without further ado, I will give him a bit of an introduction. Marty leads the National Retail Consulting Practice for Canada at Deloitte. Uh, For over 20 years, he's advised retail clients on developing and implementing retail transformation and operational improvement programs at the enterprise level. So he really knows what he's talking about. Marty, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Hi, good to, good to be here again. It's been almost a year since we've had you on last and a lot has changed, I'm guessing, in the last year in terms of how consumers are spending. Can you just give us a snapshot of what's going on? What are some of the changes that we've seen? Yeah, so look, it uh, hasn't been the the best of, uh, of times, although I would say retail sales in general, we'll, we'll get to the holiday uh, season in a moment. Retail has been, if you follow the StatsCan report, we've seen uh, deteriorating retail sales for the last few months, you know, anywhere from spring through to summer retail sales in general, when you exclude auto and fuel, have been kind of shifting down to a very low to negative growth rate. So that's sort of the raw, you know, the greater context of retail sales. That's on the back of basically a, a negative outlook on the economy, uh, high interest rates, and quite frankly, just a situation where the consumer has just got too much on his or her shoulders and just there's just no more room to give. Uh, unfortunately, that's going to carry its way into the holiday season, obviously, because that's around the corner. And so therefore, you know, the study that we just did five years in a row, showing that Canadians will be spending or they say they're going to spend about 11% less than last year. Um, and the other thing I'll say there, and I'll take a pause uh, for you to weigh in, would be that we've been doing this for five years now. Uh, and again, unfortunately, this is going to be the lowest we've seen in five years. Back in 2019, the number was about 1,700, and now it's going to be about 1,350. So you can see hmm. we're at a five-year low point. Probably not surprising, but unfortunately, it's not good for consumers, and it's definitely not good for retailers. Yeah. So how are retailers responding to 
the increasingly bad news that you've had to deliver year over year. Yes, yes, I'm uh, I'm the Grim Reaper. Um, I guess uh, I would say it's mixed, and, and actually, I also say like we should clarify it when we talk about retail. We're talking umbrella. Every peel it back and you go down a couple levels of detail. Um, it's a little bit dis- different. So, for example, if I sort of drew a continuum of retail value propositions, and on one end, we talked about extreme value. So, think dollar stores, discount stores, off-price retail. On the opposite side of that, think luxury um, and, and high service oriented. That could be in food, could be apparel, could be other sectors. And then we have what I like to call the mushy middle, where you're not really extreme value, you're not really luxury, you're somewhere in between. Um, when we think about that continuum, uh, we're seeing the dollar shift. This is before the holiday, and we expect this to go into the holiday where money will shift towards the extreme value channels. That's probably not a surprise. Um, whereas it's also, and I know we'll talk maybe a little about luxury later. In luxury, it's a little bit mixed. I mean, luxury sometimes is insulated from some of this because, again, luxury broadly defined is typically catering to the 1%. And the 1% don't feel the same pain as the 99%. So that's important, right? It doesn't mean that they're going to knock it over the park, but it also means that they're not necessarily as bad a shape as some of the others. It's the what I call the mushy middle. So these are retailers in the old days, we used to call them some of the department stores that were everything to everybody. You know, sometimes we're high price, sometimes we're low price. Like with that value propositions in that middle, those are the retailers that are feeling the pinch and will continue to feel the pinch. Well, maybe we could talk about that a little right now, because I think all year, I mean, we there were stories and, and reporting about how strong this demand is is for luxury. And you were seeing Canada Goose and Ray-Ban and LVMH and all these companies doing really, really well. And then like this kind of earnings wave, this most recent one, you're seeing that demand kind of kind of kind of drop. So what's happening there for this, you know, demand that is seen as so strong that are seen that is seen uh, as kind of driven by these, uh, you know, by people that are not affected by the broader kind of macroeconomic conditions, like what had to happen there to see that pullback? Yeah. So luxury is interesting because luxury is almost uh, an island of its own in retail. It sort of moves, as I described, a little bit of a, a different beat, right? Because if you think about the customer segments, and it will vary, by the way, like if we're talking about luxury apparel, versus luxury jewelry, put it to my Apple Watch, there's nothing luxury about that. <laughs> but you know, you get the point. It's a little bit, it's a little bit different, right? Because yes, they cater to the 1% or sometimes even the 0.5%. And those uh, those shoppers will still spend. But by the way, interestingly in our holiday study, and this is the first time this happened, higher income Canadians, and for us that's defined as households with more than $150,000 of income, they too, to the extent of about 70% of them have also said, we're going to start cutting back this year in holiday shopping too. So that will carry over to luxury, whereas maybe in previous holiday seasons, it has not. Because I think, you know, it's still at some point, it's just seen as a little bit too much. Just because you have money in the bank, it doesn't mean you're just going to let it go, even though you can afford to let it go. You're still psychologically going to, you know, maybe want to pull back a little bit. And of course, $150,000, no disrespect, is also not the 1%. Like when you think about the 1%, that is significantly yeah. higher than 150K. But these luxury retailers don't just cater to the 1%. They also cater to the aspirational 1%. So there's a lot of shoppers. And I would even right. put myself a little bit in that where I aspire Who is to be it? in the 1%. Yeah. I'm not in the 1%. But once in a while, I might fake it and pretend I'm in the 1% and go buy something at a luxury retailer because, right? But that would be a one-time thing for me. It won't be a routine. So 
those shoppers are the ones that are absolutely probably going to pull back on luxury. So from a retail performance perspective, that's why you might see some uneven performance in the luxury segment. What is the relationship between the uh, prices in that middle segment of retail and the demand that you're seeing sort of fall out of that segment now? Should people expect to see, you know, after, you know, a couple of years of prices going up, prices now start to fall if you're shopping in that middle segment? Or how does that, how do those two uh, factors, I guess, play against each other? So we talk about pricing, by the way, pricing, the, the concept of pricing your retail price strategy is probably one of our hottest topics at Deloitte right now in terms of the kind of work we're being asked to partner with clients on, which is really kind of sorting through pricing because I'll just tie it back to a holiday insight as well, and then we'll come back to your question. But look, re- uh, Canadians feel, and I think it's about 70, 75% feel that retailers rightfully or wrongfully are raising prices unjustifiably. Now, I'm not a politician, and as if you've watched any of my PR, I'm the first one to say, I'm not a politician. I'm not getting involved in the politics of this because governments are getting involved. You see it all play out. Put all that aside, at the end of the day, um, retailers are trying to figure out what's the right way to price so that I balance, obviously making money because I got to make money, but also manage this perception because it's creating um, a trust issue between retailer and shopper. If If they feel prices are going up unjustifiably, it may actually not matter whether that's true or not true. What matters is what they think and what they perceive. And we have a perception issue right now. And so that trust is fracturing and retailers do need to work on, I guess, patching that up and figuring out how to stop trust from eroding and pricing is part of that. So that's sort of an overarching sort of insight and it's coming through loudly and clearly in our in our holiday study. To your point about what's gonna happen longer term with pricing, uh, putting aside what I just said, do I think prices, once inflation stabilizes, are going to come down? Well, I think in commodity care, uh, categories, probably. We're seeing some of that already happen in food because it's market pricing, right? That's supply, demand. That's sort of going to move with the market. Sometimes it'll go up, sometimes it'll go down. If you put food aside and just think about general merchandise and apparel, probably less so. Like I, This is just my personal opinion. I, I, I can't show you studies and statistics to support this. But if I think back over the 20 odd years um, I've been in retail, we've had inflation come and go, you know, maybe not to the same extent as this for a while. But do I see a scenario where I'm walking into, if this sweater costs $100 now, and I'm lying, I didn't pay that much. I would never pay $100 for a sweater. <laughs> I'm a retail, I'm cheap. Um, do I think it's going to come down? No. I think best case scenario is we see it level off and we see it stopping to increase. In general, that's what I expect to happen outside of food. Maybe I can ask you about another big macro trend and how it relates to what's going on in retail, which is the uh, historically low unemployment rate. Yeah. Are you seeing, uh, how are you seeing retailers cope with that now? Are retailers generally able to find enough labor? How is that impacting wages? Like, is that a big cost pressure, especially heading into the holiday season where? You know, it seems like retailers are always trying to staff up a little bit more than than usual. What's happening with that? No, it's a good question. So in general, seasonal hiring. So seasonal seasonal hiring is probably going to be a little more muted this year versus last year's. Uh, now, of course, there's a couple of things at play here, right? So the last couple of years, store openings and store closing because of the pandemic, like we're past that now. If you recall the last, how much you hire and all that, you know, was a little bit easier with the pandemic because either you couldn't open all your stores or... People didn't want to work. I mean, whatever the reasons, we're past that. 
Um, so there is seasonal hiring, but it's absolutely not going to be what it was at the peak, you know, two, three years ago. Um, on top of that, yes, wages are up, whether it's minimum wage has gone up or we're seeing some retailers just generally increase wages because cost of living is just higher and people are just not going to work, right? And so they can't find labor unless they're going to get paid fairly for that work, which means they can afford to live off of that, like a living wage. So all those things are playing out right now. So the retail labor base is going up. And by the way, outside of, if you put cost of goods aside on the SG&A side of our retail P&L, there's two things that really drive EBITDA. One is rent. And y'all, y'all I mean, we, we can debate that separately. And the other one's labor. Like on average retail P&L, the average spend of labor to sales, which is a retail metric, is anywhere from probably 7 8% up to probably 15 16 17%. And that's mm-hmm. a huge spread. And that is simply tied to the way the operation is structured to make money, right? So I would say on a low margin business like food, you're going to see the lower end of that labor rate. And on maybe an apparel where there's a higher service element, you'll see a little bit on the higher end, right? So retailers try to navigate that range because there's a lot of room between 8% and 20% on labor to impact the bottom line. So that's all happening now. So Labor is more expensive. Retailers trying to balance how much they can afford relative to their service strategy and what they need to do to, to obviously run their business. And it's a tough place to be for a retailer right now because, A, the labor ba- the supply rate is not great because you said that employ- employment is holding up. And, of course, the input costs are up. So they're kind of getting the worst of the worst, right, uh, all across the board. I will say a couple of the things that are important here, which is um, we're starting to see some, you know, pulling back in employment, right? So it's still pretty good, but it's not as good as it was before. So there's, you're seeing there's companies in the middle of restructuring now, there's still layoffs happening. I expect more of that to happen over the coming months as this worked this way through the snake. Uh, and, and we'll kind of see what happens Jan, Feb, but seasonally workers down, pressure in the PL is up and there's still a bit of a labor shortage. And those are still realities of running a retail store today. Well, this is a good segue into my next question, which is a follow-up on the last time we chatted and we talked about a bunch of exciting things and interesting things like self, like self-checkout yeah. and like even digital price tags yeah. um, that, you know, have the goal of ultimately reducing labor costs. So in the last several months, year, like what, how have we seen the rollout of such innovations and have we seen new things also enter the market? So, boy, am I the bearer of bad news here. Unfortunately... Um, we've seen a pullback in some of those areas. So here's okay. what I would say. I'm going to come back to self-check in a second because that's where we're seeing a pullback area. Like, for example, uh, whereas and I'll, there's exceptions to this rule, we're seeing some retailers actually pull out or reduce the number of self-checkout lanes. And there's one wow. big reason for it. It's called shrink. So the other issue we have going on in retail right now is theft. And it's at, I've been doing this maybe 25 years now and Never in my 25 years have I seen what we retail call shrink. And there's multiple reasons why we shrink. That's basically where stuff goes missing, either because it's stolen internally or externally, or it gets quote unquote lost. And stuff does get lost, believe it or not. That Hmm. shrink rate, by the way, is typically is sub 2% in most retail operations. We're seeing shrink rates potentially double for some retailers. And depending how thin your EBITDA margin is, I have one retail client that told me literally two weeks ago, they'd be profitable if it were not for shrink. I mean, that's fairly unheard of. Uh, wow. and, and a lot of that is tied, unfortunately, to the economy, 
and people are just forced to do things they don't want to do. And theft and organized retail crime is a massive problem. In fact, I'm sure you guys have seen this. Just Google um, Target and store closes yes. and you're going to see they're closing stores. Why? Not because they're bad stores or not making money because people are stealing to the point they can't keep the store open. It's actually amazing to get your perspective on this because I'm just thinking here where like the narrative around even those store closures in the States was like people kind of trying to figure out like, is this overblown? Is Target actually closing stores because of uh, because of theft? We've now, I think there's an article, uh, an article this week, right? Like London Drugs in Vancouver um, you know, having a similar, a similar problem and, and facing, and, and, and I think the CEO is there saying like, this is a massive problem across the industry. So in, in your view, are those like, I guess is, does that all check out? This is actually a, a, a big problem 100%. and not one that's being uh, Without a doubt in my mind, so I can confidently say this is the worst I've seen it in a couple decades. Um, like I said, it's on the heels of many reasons. The economy is one. And also, I'll be honest with you, retailers, I'm not going to say they fell asleep at the wheel because it's not, that's a peanut butter statement. But absolutely, I know for a fact, because of clients I've spoken to, some dictate their hands off the wheel on shrink. Because if you look back at shrink, it's not a new problem in retail. We've always had theft and, and, and things go you know, missing. Uh, and it's very hard to figure out where and why it happens. It is, it is one of the most challenging issues in retail to solve. If the industry would have solved it, we wouldn't have it. And so because it's so challenging, it can happen in so many places. And I won't go down all the rabbit holes because there's dozens of places um, that shrink can occur. Everything up from the supplier moving it through the supply chain to the store, through the customer. I mean, there's lots of places where... Um, you know, inventory is lost either physically or on paper, by the way, because of data mistakes and errors, which also cause this loss. My point, hmm. though, is, is that the big part that's changed in the past few months is the organized retail crime, because unfortunately, the bad actors have figured out the gaps and are exploiting the heck out of it. This is maybe maybe you don't have this data at your fingertips and no worries if not. But is there any sense of how much of shrink is accounted for by theft versus these, you know, other factors throughout the supply chain? Accounting errors, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me see if I can answer that without getting myself in trouble. I would say uh, it that number is growing right now for sure. Like if I thought about, remember I shared that, let's say roughly 2% of sales, uh, yeah. 2 to 3% of sales, depending on what part of retail you're in. Um, I would have said five years ago, organized crime and actual theft where somebody walk just walk out um, would have been a small part of that number. I, I don't think I could put a percentage on it, but it'll be a smaller yeah. part of that number. What's happened now is that number has probably become a big contributor um, versus what it was a couple of years ago. And so that's why, and that's why I said get caught off guard a little bit because it's a pretty hard problem to fix. And by the way, there's a lot of interesting experiments happening. I'll give you one example of a, to, to answer your question on innovation. So yes, we're pulling out self checkouts. Why? Because it makes it easier to steal. It's obvious, right? But we're seeing retailers start to put cameras. There's always been cameras, by the way. When you go and pay for something in a self checkout, make no mistake, there's a camera in there. The problem is they're doing, not, doing nothing with it. And so what we're seeing now is video analytics being deployed to the extent where in some retailers, they know who the bad actors are because they have CCTV footage. They haven't been able to catch the people, but they know, hey, Sarah, I saw you walk in my store, grab that TV and walk out. I don't know who you are, but I recognize you visually. Now the technology is can say, bad actor, Sarah, 
And we can look for Sarah. So some retailers are experimenting with cameras in parking lots and front doorways so that Sarah, if you walk into my store and I see you, I compare you. It's almost like CODIS, right? With the police. Nope. Loss prevention, get on the floor and exit her out of the store. That's what we're seeing. I'm never going to steal a TV, Marty. Between the three of us, like, do I sometimes type in, okay, these are grapes and not organic grapes? Like, maybe sometimes I've done that at self checkout. I'll admit it, but that is crazy to me. I want to stay is on that point. Now? I will tell you, I've heard stories. Somebody will walk in, take a TV from the floor, a flat screen TV, and walk out the door. Wow. Yeah. I've heard stories of people going in, especially at, not to not to name names, but like at HomeSense, people just fill shopping carts and will just exit HomeSense yeah. just without because they don't really bag things there anyway. Um, and so you just look like another person yeah. leaving the store. Here's another, here, here's another sort of unfair data question for you, Marty, <laughs> which is, do you have any sense of uh, how much self-checkout contributes to shrink? Like if I have a normal store with you know, staff checkout wow. lanes, and then I switch to self-checkout. Yeah. How much can I expect theft to go up? Okay, so here's where the part of retail matters. So in food and grocery, which is where self-checkout, I would say food and drug, where self-checkout was most um, most well-penetrated from a percentage of lanes, right? Where a lane equals either a man or person cash register versus a self-checkout lane. I mean, if you just walk into one of our very big mass merchants now, you will see that you know the number of self-checkout lanes could be in the teens to 20 versus you know the number of uh, lanes with people working cash registers being less than the number of self-checkouts. Outside of grocery, that's not the case, right? We go into malls. The only retailers you can go to and where you can see uh, non-food self-checkout would be like, for example, Uniqlo, uh, Zara. Some of the actually global apparel retailers have deployed technology like RFID together with self-checkout where it's pretty hard to steal because, so this actually is a sweater from one of those retailers, which I actually bought uh, in Europe over the holidays. And the way I bought, it's actually my baggage got stolen, personal story, baggage got stolen. I had to buy a wardrobe for a two-week holiday in France. I went to a retailer, basically bought probably 20, 25 pieces of clothing. I went to the self-checkout and I took things, put them in a bin, it recognizes all the RFID, you swipe your credit card, you walk out. You really can't steal like that because each item is tagged with an RFID tag. So if I walk out the store, the alarm will go off. So like in those parts of self-checkout, I think you're going to see it grow because it reduces labor and is a pretty good control against shrink. In food, you can't do that. In food, as you've seen, you can push your car right out the door. You can, you know, what they call, called sweethearting, which is where you, you know, you have two things and you scan one thing and the other thing goes in the bag and you put two in the bag. That's called sweethearting. There's a lot of techniques that thieves will use that because you can't put RFID on a bag of coffee, right? So mm. it is a bit of a mixed bag. Um, but to, your, to answer your question, I would say on the food side, probably doubled what, it, what shrink would have been otherwise. Wow. We'll do a follow-up episode where we can just talk about all the shoplifting techniques. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going can... to make it sound like I'm a bad actor. I'm going to make, make you the bad actor, Sarah, not me, but... I know, I know. I I do want to stay on the example that you actually used for me though with the with the with the video usage, right? Too, because that's super interesting to me as well, with the video being inside the self-checkout. And I'm wondering if like beyond that, is there like do they have any way to um, I guess just like automate surveillance within a store as well that they can like tell if you are maybe stealing something as you're walking through without a a human being able to monitor it and be able like be able to 
to flag, obviously, in a massive store. Like, how is that aspect being automated, if, if yeah. at all? And what, what is the technology? Yeah, that technology has been around for a little while. And it's, it's, a, it's a build off of what I just said. In fact, there are lots of companies now that are doing videos. The problem, and, and by the way, yeah, the technology is absolutely there that it can recognize Marty going to a shelf, picking something up, putting it in my pocket and saying, that's theft. Like, Whoa. but here's the problem, right? So, so the technology is there, but here's where the obstacles come up. Uh, number one, it's expensive because now if you have hundreds of thousands of stores and you need dozens and dozens of cameras, the infrastructure, it's just the capital is enormous. And so the problem is bad, but the capital is still bigger. So the business case is tough. That's point one. Point two is even if that technology is deployed and it sees Marty data doing this, first of all, I have to walk onto the store for it to be called shoplifting. Like putting it in my pocket in a bag is not shoplifting technically, right? So it should be. When is it should be fair? But <laughs> when is the, when is the crime actually committed? Usually right. after exiting, which by the way is almost too late, right? So just consider that as point two. And point three is a couple things. You also now have to do something about it. So some retailers have, even if you have a security, whether it's um, uniform or plain clothes, and both are deployed, you've walked in many stores and you see a, a uniform security individual front, and that could be because they're also uh, ununiformed individuals. The problem is many retailers have policies not to intervene for safety reasons. Because let's say Marty did this, and I walk out, and Taylor's the security guard. What we don't want to have to do is Taylor jump Marty and physically get into an altercation and risk either hurting me. And by the way, even though I'm the criminal, I'm still going to sue you. And you're not going to be happy about that. Or you're going to get hurt and sue your employer. Like, unfortunately, the bad actors always have the advantage. And so these three things together make it very, very hard to intervene, even in that scenario. I hate to follow this with such a massive hypothetical and let me know if I'm, if I'm, if I need to kind of stay in my lane here as well, but it's just like kind of another instance. It looks like where it's like, okay, if these, like if, if shrink is, is increasing, if theft is increasing, like ultimately like retailers are going to have to, like they're dealing with enough pressures in the supply chain. And now they're also going to have to account for this. So like the rise of this, while you're seeing it, it's like the way that that impacts the everyday consumer who, you know, is, is just shopping at the grocery store is that like there's pressure on prices to then also incorporate for all of that. Is, is that, I don't know, is that accurate? A hundred percent accurate. And again, that's where I got into the whole, you know, it's not about being right or wrong. I mean, you think about why, let's stick with food, why retailers raise prices. Like I said, it's, it's because their input costs went up. So I, I, I stuck to the supply chain input cost, but by the way, shrink is no different. It's an input cost it's not a supplier driven one. It's obviously driven by you know, theft or whatnot in the store, but equally impacts margin. And so my shrink went from 2% to 4% and my EBITDA margin is 5%. That's a big deal. So I kind of pass that cost on as well or absorb it. It's that same walls closing in on the retail. Like, what do I do? I feel like we could talk about this for the remainder of the episode, but I do want to to kind of switch gears here and talk a little bit more about um, data, I guess, just in the context of, uh, I guess, in, in a, bit, a bit of a more positive light, because we're seeing that, I guess, cut, like data and surveillance and, um, and and technology is is playing an increasing role in the, the industry, not just for surveillance, but now kind of to the point of like, okay, well, how are, um, how are, retailers now using this beyond surveillance, right? We're seeing uh, some retailers are even kind of becoming media agencies because they're like, okay, well, we have all this customer data and, you know, how do we use it to, you know, to sell better, to even connect advertisers and, and get them in front of people. So can you speak a little bit to, uh, can you speak a little bit to 
that shift and, and what's going on there? Yeah, I would say oh, data, data and the concept of analytics and sort of becoming more you know, insights oriented as an organization we've been talking about for actually many, many years now, probably seriously for about probably the last six or seven. And you know, slowly but surely, retailers have started to invest and build capabilities because their skills required. So there's the concept and the value of doing something with your data, but you still got to have the infrastructure technology-wise and more importantly, people capability-wise to actually do something with all that data. So retailers are starting to you know bring that forward. What's I guess happening now that's probably even more exciting that is, and maybe this is where you're going, is you know AI in general. When you add sort of this data and the AI capabilities that are quite hot right now, and you put those together, that's where we think some real magic is going to happen, right? And because, as I mentioned, retailers were lacking some of the skills. So think about data science skills. So somebody who actually knows what to do with all that data you're collecting, that's not the traditional retail merchant. That's not the traditional retail IT professional, these are new skills, right? So it took some time to hire in some cases, not so much now, but think about the heydays of um, the great uh, resignation. Like everyone was hiring data scientists, everybody was hiring these individuals. And so you couldn't get enough of them to actually do something about that sort of corrected its way through a little bit now. So now we're at the point where technology is coming in to relieve some of the stress and pressure that would have just two years ago sat on human shoulders. And so now we're thinking about a human plus technology answer. So a bit of a handshake between uh, those two entities. And that's where the unlock, I think, is really going to happen. Along with that now is coming a new conversation topic because are the machines going to take over and how can we trust the machines and all the ethics around AI is where a lot of the conversation is shifting to. So in our conversations with clients, obviously we're helping them understand use cases and ways to create value with data and artificial intelligence. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's still going to boil down to are, are, are we getting creepy? Uh, if we automate too much, our shopper is going to say, Oof, that doesn't feel so good. Like, I know I'm not talking to a human. So there's a whole sort of what I call a human side and ethics side that's going in parallel. We don't hear as much about that because it's not as interesting to talk about. But I can tell you from conversations we're having with executives, they absolutely want to hear the use case and the value creation but they equally want to understand the risks and the ethical implications of this. So that's playing out right now. So what are the specific use cases that you are talking about in your conversations? Lots, 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 lots. So I think uh, if I think about retail, um, I'll tell you where we're getting sort of pretty excited. So one is going to be in customer engagement. So everything from, you know, what we call old school chatbots, which if you use an old school chatbot, they're pretty crappy. You know, most of the time you don't get an answer you need. It, it's you can't really converse. But now the natural language processing capability, together with you know digital chatbots and whatnot. So we're seeing a lot of call centers, both internal and external, uh, really start to leverage uh, AI to have a better customer experience. So hey, I ordered this online. Where's my stuff? All those kind of typical calls you get are now can be very much automated and dealt with through AI and through data. That's a big use case. Another one is going to be on the product side. That's a big area, right? So for example, in a retailer that has maybe 50, 60, $100,000 items in the assortment, that's a lot of data. There's a lot of analysis to be done around taking things uh, into the assortment, pulling things out of the assortment, uh, pricing we talked about. Think about all the permutations of pricing, like thinking about what the market's doing. How much is my competitor selling this, this cup for? And what should I sell? So the, the analytics piece 
uh, using AI and general AI to help speed up uh, how we get to better insights. That's another big use case we're seeing. The third one I would talk to is on the marketing side, and this is going to be not so exciting, but it's efficiency building. So when I build a website and I have to, you know, write copy. So, all right, I got to put this on my site. I got to take a couple of pictures, but then I have to write product descriptions, all the boring stuff you have to do to set up an item online. That is done by humans today. That is an enormous amount of work. All of that right now can be done by generative AI. So there's a lot of internal use cases. I gave you a marketing example, but everywhere you had like just humans kind of doing work, typing things away because they had to go research, you know, company systems that can all be automated now. So those are probably the three or four areas that people are leaning into first. And then I'm sure after that, there'll be lots more, but those are probably some of the early ones. What about some of the uh, specific applications of how, um, I guess, big companies are leveraging data specifically to kind of um, engage with and kind of target consumers? And so I think the, the point that I alluded to a bit earlier was like, I know that some of the, like some of the retailers, I think mostly the, the grocers are kind of leaning into like in the big kind of, you know, CPG kind of companies are leaning into like, okay, well, how do we kind of harness this, this data to kind of even just like connect our suppliers with with customers and so um how is i'm that's probably in it's relatively early stages compared to even some of the other things that you're you're speaking to but i'm wondering uh how how that's shaking out yeah i'd say so there's the supply chain angle you're talking about obviously there's an exchange between retailer and supplier so that they can sort of together you know do better forecasting move product more efficiently like right product right place right time I think on the upstream side, um, and that's not new, you know, companies like Walmart probably, not probably, they are the pioneers of that. Um, and what's now known or used to be known as their retail link system, which is you know publicly known. And that was basically early days of supplier retailer collaboration. And that, you know, that's kind of continued uh, to evolve. I'd say on the retail side, where a lot of the innovation is around loyalty programs and the evolution of loyalty programs, because at the end of the day, whether it's a traditional points program, you earn and burn, all that kind of stuff, anywhere to, you know, because loyalty, quite frankly, is being redefined right now. It's not just about the card and the points and all that, but the data that retailers collect on their shoppers, whether you have a branded program or not, that data is now what, you know, even back to my generative AI example, they're starting to figure out how to provide personalization at scale. We've heard about personalization for years now. The problem was at scale. So again, it takes took humans and bodies to go through and figure out, what am I going to promote to Sarah? What am I going to promote to Taylor? What am I going to promote to Marty? Our situations are different. What you want, what he wants, what I want. So that was talked about a lot. But now with those technologies, whether AI and the data, that's where I think loyalty is being redefined and where we're seeing value being created finally with personalization at scale. So as a customer... I guess like, cause you talk, when you talk about shopping, there's like the in-person and there's the online. I'm wondering if you could talk us through like, as a customer, like what is the data that you're specifically giving up? I guess like when you go in store versus when you're shopping online, and I don't know if it would be easier to maybe like give an, an example yeah. for this of like a specific type of store, but I'm wondering like, what is like, I guess, what is the, the data that they're using to then lean into personalization and, and how is, yeah, like, how do they know anything, anything about me? Yeah. What do they know? Yeah. Well, I'll t- so I'll give, you, I'll give you like two, two different versions of that that are kind of connected with different. So the first one's an obvious one where it probably doesn't matter whether what category we're talking about, but it's basically 
think about basic demographic information, right? So name, rank, serial number, all that kind of stuff, age, income, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, purchase history, then those are those are like what I call the basics, right? So when Marty comes to my store, Marty buys this typically. We can see when he comes to the store, when I come to the store, like all the basics of like just tracking my shopping journey, I would say, right? So that's right. sort of not ne not necessarily new. Where things are going from that and building off of that would be now on top of what they do with me, it's trying to get visibility of what retailers can find it about me that I don't do with them. So for example, I might use Google searches if I'm shopping for food or clothing and I'm searching for a blue sweater and maybe I hit link of a certain retailer. But after that, I went and I hit the link of a second retailer and a third retailer. This data, we call this third-party data. This, this third-party data can be purchased by retailers and then stitched together with their internal loyalty data that I alluded to about me, my family, my household right. purchases. When you sort of stitch together, well, look, Marty searched for this. He looked at four websites. He didn't buy anything from me. He bought from somebody else. Well, I just lost a sale. So then when they stitch together the internal, the external, they can start to learn more about how their value proposition is resonating or not with me. Right. So if you're like a like a PC Optimum user, it's like so it's like that obviously will kind of that'll record in like your purchase history and all it does is like paint a fuller picture, right. I guess, of who you are. That's right. Interesting. It gets crazier. I'll give you one little extra example. And that is please. We have an asset actually at Deloitte, which uh, which we've built over the last five years, where we actually we call it converged consumer. We bought we buy a bunch of third party data, including by the way, this is gonna sound creepy. Heads up where cell phones are going. So when you have your cell phone today, by the way, whether you know it or not, you're, you know, Google's tracking you, all, your phone's tracking you everywhere you go, how long you were here, what yeah. you do. So we actually work with retailers, for example, a type. So we have a grocery client we work with and we help them understand through our asset when we can see, we help them understand what shoppers were doing as they left their house. It doesn't matter, it's not about where they live, but they, they, they leave a residence. And for example, here's a use case. Marty leaves his house. He's about to go grocery shopping at retailer A. And, you know, he goes, does his shop. And then on the way home, he stops off at some QSR restaurant, let's pick McDonald's, buys dinner, and then comes home. Right. If you're a grocer, that's interesting. Why? Because what happened was you just lost a sale. Because Marty was just at my store doing grocery shopping. And then afterwards, he decided to go to McDonald's and buy dinner for his family. He could have done that in my store. So next time Marty comes to my store, let's remind him through a personalized note that we have this whole ready to eat area so you can follow. So like this is pretty, maybe it's creepy, maybe it's not, but these are the kinds of use cases we're, we're working with clients on. In terms of, because uh, we, we spoke about this, like I guess a bit earlier, where is, you were talking about how to make this, I guess, like not creepy. And so how are retail businesses thinking about you know, because I think people also know that they're giving up this data. You look at, and it's not just retailers that are doing this. You look at uh, stories that are about, you know, back to back to work trends. And like that stuff is all gathered on like mobile data that's like making its way through the financial district. And like the commercial real True. estate agencies are all like, yeah, like where we know where everyone is and everyone's talking about it. And so um, I don't think it's it, it's really that surprising to people. But in terms of where we kind of draw the draw the line, like where, 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 how are those conversations? Yeah. Uh, it, no what, what do those conversations yeah. cover? Yeah. Look, the quick answer is there isn't a clean answer yet. So I would say there's a the guiding principle I would say that everyone's trying to abide by is give and get. Like it's kind of that simple. I give you something, what do I get? 
Yeah. Well, if I'm going to give you my data, allow you to use my data, then I'm going to get something. I mean, that's the basic human principle, but that's easier said than done. And so what we have now is that we have a lot of new rules and regulations. I don't think we're done with the government intervention here. And you may have heard about things around GDPR and all that, like just how to protect data in general. Europe has led. We're following here in North America. Where eventually this goes, I'm not 100% sure, but it's not going to be what it is today. There's going to be more regulation for sure. There's going to have to be more give and get clarity between you know me owning my data and what I decide to give retailer A, B, or C and what I'm going to get for it. Uh, and then also just uh, just general ethics, I would say, right? So what is what is sort of fair and respectful given regulation and given the give and get, but also what's appropriate, right? So those are, I think, the three of the tips of the triangle, if you will, that are sort of getting worked through right now and where all those things land, I'm not sure yet because we've been work, working on this and talking about this for years. I expect it's going to go on for, for years to come, to be honest. These are all such interesting anecdotes. I know that we're nearing the end of our time here, Marty, but before we let you go, I do want to ask, is there anything like outside of what we've talked about that you're paying super close attention to in, in terms of just like, you know, trends, what, you know, clients are, are looking out for uh, when it comes to retail, maybe even when it comes to, to data over kind of the, the coming months, coming years? Yeah, I mean, I think retail is a battlefield. I mean, and I would, I would just close with saying it, it's, um, yes, the economy is going to go up and down. Things are going to happen. Life is life. Uh, but what doesn't change is retail basics, right? That's what I often tell clients is we can get very consumed by the topic du jour or what's happening kind of immediately in front of us. But at the end of the day, retail, yes, it's become more complicated, but it is a simple business. And I always like to say, Never forget about the basics, right? Like right product, right time, right place. Um, and if you kind of stick to that, because it's funny how retailers lose their way. They get driven into a certain direction, you know, shiny pennies coming at them all the time, more shiny pennies now than ever. And I always say, just be careful not to get too distracted by too many shiny pennies. It's okay to look at a few shiny pennies because that's how innovation happens. But if you have too many shiny pennies, it'll drag you down, it'll backfire. So back to basics right? Never forget about the basics with just enough innovation and shiny pennies so you can progress your strategy and win. It's that simple, might I say. Super fascinating. That's such an amazing snapshot of, of the kind of the state of the industry right now, Marty. Thank you so much for, for coming on and, and sharing yeah, those great. insights with us. Yeah, my pleasure. I love seeing you guys. Okay. Well, a fascinating conversation with Marty, I think there's a couple points that stick out to me from that conversation. Probably the the biggest one too is the self-checkout piece. And like when you ask a question about how like retailers are kind of ramping up in like innovation and, and automation and things like that to actually hear that this is something that's actively being looked at as uh, something that maybe should be scaled down given shrink. Like I'm still processing, um, processing, I guess, like M Marty's confirmation of um of of shoplifting and kind of that 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 effect on retailers bottom line and how that kind of feeds into the overall cost of of what we pay of things um did you know yeah. that no pretty remarkable that it's a doubling of theft when you put in those self checkout lanes at grocery stores i mean i guess it doesn't it doesn't totally surprise me given how easy it is to 
steal from grocery okay, stores but is it through that easy? Have you ever tried to I, well, put... Well, we can talk to, about it offline. Have you, you ever want. tried to not put something on the weight scale and then it starts flashing and it's like, you're missing an item from the basket? That's what I was thinking. I was like, oh my gosh, that piece alone is so annoying. But I guess there's lots of ways to get around that if you're determined. To well, know. I mean, he gave... There was one tip. I don't know, for careful listeners, there was one tip that he actually gave if you are... Maybe not a tip, <laughs> but a... A strategy that people do use. So if you are trying to fool the machines, there is there is a possible there are, there are some possible ways to do it. But you know, I, I I won't be if they got rid of those self checkout machines. I wouldn't be sad to see them go. But I did see the uh, the ones that Marty was talking about that he used in France are now at the Uniqlo at the Eaton Center, and they're amazing. I don't know if you've yeah. tried these. Have you I, used these before? I've used the ones at Zara because they're rolling out something similar. I don't know which okay. one is better, but it's like, yeah, it's like the where bins. Where you just dump everything in the bin dump, and it's like. Yeah. It just and then you, you just, the, yeah. and you grab a bag too. And I guess like the way that they enforce that as well is that there's the little tag and like they count. I don't know if they do this at Uniqlo, but at Zara, you actually have to like remove the little security tag and then you can put it in the, in the bin, which is like, I guess how they, how they mitigate shoplif- shoplifting is by counting the tags versus the, oh, the no, items there was, in your bag. There was none of that at Uniqlo. No, you just oh, take so it's your, just a free your for basket, all you just dump it in the bin, and literally, then you just walk out. That's crazy. I wonder if they have something woven into the fabric that would that would set off some sort of alarm. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. That's a good question. Or maybe the bin deactivates something. I don't know. We should get more clarity on this, though. Uh, I feel like we could do a whole episode on shoplifting. A hundred percent. Percent of the of the of the equation as well, but in in all seriousness, I guess like this kind of puts into perspective what a massive um, what a massive cost shoplifting. I mean, has always been for businesses how it's a growing cost, and it takes me back to the point of how that's factored into the price of the consumer. But it's like it's interesting. I've been thinking about this this a lot, which is why I asked the question because I think as you and not to take this too far away from the conversation, but when we talk about um, how car thefts are increasing so much as well too. Mm. Like I, it just, it kills me. This is the stuff I think about on my way to work. It's like, oh my gosh, like as, you know, as the, uh, as car thefts go up, like this is something that then gets, you know, worked into the, to the, you know, the final cost of a car into the final cost of insurance in such a way that it obviously effectively subsidizes, um, kind of bad actors in the industry. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in car theft. Now I'm going to start thinking about it a lot in, with respect to what happens to the to, to, I guess to is happening on the grocery store floors, but it is fascinating how um, how sectors kind of shift to incorporate that, and obviously it, it feeds into the final price. Yeah, although at the same time, it is these I think higher prices, especially in food, that causes a lot of. And Marty alluded to this in the interview, but it causes the spike in in theft as well. So it's, it seems like maybe kind of a vicious circle in that sense. I would be curious about what items are the most stolen. Shoplifted. Yeah. So uh, you know, you go into the grocery store, what are people sad. really stealing? I it's feel like, like Parmesan cheese. 
no, Taylor, it's like it's like baby formula. It's like sad things. Oh, it's like it's yeah, like it's maybe, like eh? it's literally like it's like pharmacy goods are like stolen. I think a lot too. But if we were to specifically keep it to to food, it's like it's it's the really it's the things that kind of tug on your heartstrings attend to. But yeah, we can also. But I'm sure that there's okay, also well now I seem out of touch for saying <laughs> that it was Parmesan. <laughs> that is one of those things that that is the most overpriced. But you can't steal That's if you're going to steal Parmesan. You also have to steal a big a big jar of marinara sauce. You have to steal yeah. some pasta. You can't just some steal the Parmesan. A, a chicken breast board. to really round out the meal. You can't just have the Parmesan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting too, though, how um, I guess like it's a, and we learn this in, in a lot of different industries, but there's also like a difference between, you know, putting a rule in place, which is like don't shoplift and then actually like enforcing it and the high, high, high costs of enforcement. And it's interesting when he says, you know, we have the technology to like literally follow you through the store and see mm. if you're putting stuff in your bag, but it's just a massive cost and infrastructure cost to actually like roll it out, making sure that there's a camera at every col- like corner. And so that's always yeah. fascinating, right, to you where it's like, oh, the solution exists and is there, but actually being able to adopt the solution and actually having the people in place to enforce it is something totally totally, totally different. Yeah. And it's interesting that some of these places are just closing stores because it's become such an issue. Like it's it's better, it's a better business decision just to close the store than to actually, you know, bother with stricter enforcement. Well, that was some of the uh, backlash with the with the Target kind of articles talking about the Target closures is that like people were saying like, no, like this isn't actually because of shoplifting. They're making a big deal about it. Like this is also because maybe like these stores were less profitable. And I'm sure it's a bit of like column A, column, column B, but yeah. it's great to have a retail expert on to be like, no, like this is very legitimate. This is an issue because – we're starting to see, as I mentioned earlier, we're starting to see um, the same kind of problem trickle into into Canada. And who wants to who wants to read about it? There is that like London Drugs, which is I think a pharmacy in Vancouver. Their you know CEO is now talking about this, and and they say that they're not exploring store closures, but they're talking about what a massive um, impact shoplifting is, is is having on on them and their bottom line. So they're surely not the mm. only ones in Canada dealing dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, fascinating conversation. Always good to have Marty on and get a check on what's going on in retail out there. Definitely. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. What do you think? Yeah, let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. Uh, I'm your co-host, Sarah. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And I'm Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And you can find all of our episodes uh, covering a range of topics across business, economics, and policy uh, when you search Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much, and we'll, we'll see you next week.